We're going to be starting a brand new series in the book of Exodus. Anyone else excited with me? No? Whoa, I didn't think I was going to get that response. Thank you. (laughs) I'm so excited. Uh, We're going to be in this series for the entire summer. Um, So we're going to be, the reason I'm excited is because we're going to witness the same God that we witnessed in our day, in our time, at work in, in an old day, in the past, by giving a promise and fulfilling that promise in ways that affects the way that we see, that we understand, that we relate, and we worship our God today. Okay, so real quick, the book of Exodus is 40 chapters long, and we're going to be doing that for the remainder of the summer. Okay, so um, I want to invite you to study the book with us as well. So basically, you know, it's 10 weeks, and it's 40 chapters. So that's four chapters a, a week. If you could just study that, and we're going to explore the heart of God together uh, through this wonderful book of Exodus. And I'm going to be dipping in here and there throughout the summer to to better serve you. And I'm so excited that we have an amazing uh, preaching team that's here as well. And we have some wonderful uh, pastor friends of mine that's going to be coming along the summertime to help out with this series. So I'm so excited about that. So this morning we're going to be in Exodus chapter 1 and 2 primarily, so let's turn there. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 1. Before I start, let me say this. Um, Growing up, I had a steady diet of PBS, okay? Uh, Any PBS viewers in here? uh, For all you people who, um, all you rich kids growing up who watch Nickelodeon, (laughs) so jealous of you. You guys don't know what PBS is, okay? Listen, PBS is uh, the, the public broadcasting system, and these were these free educational programs that we didn't get, we didn't get, we didn't pay for. So this is awesome. So growing up in my hometown of Queens, uh, growing up, uh, we watched PBS. It was Channel 13. I believe it's still there, Channel 13 today. Uh, I don't watch it as much anymore. But um, PBS, growing up, uh, my mom actually made us watch it, my sister, my brother, and I. We made us watch PBS. Uh, We got to like PBS, and there was this one particular program with my favorite painter. You guys know who I'm talking about? Bob Ross, thank you, awesome. Right, best looking afro for a white man has ever had right there, okay? I loved Bob Ross. Bob Ross is one of the greatest painters that we've ever seen, okay? And every time I would watch Bob Ross, every time, what, he, well, what I would see is, he, first of all, he would take out these oil brushes, right? He would, he would take out these broad brushes and he would start to paint the background with a beautiful sunset, and then what he would do is, he would start to sculpt in some mountains, some trees, and then some little happy little clouds. You guys remember the happy little clouds? And I'm watching this thing, and about 20 minutes into this half-hour program, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is the most spectacular painting I have ever seen in my entire life. It is absolutely beautiful. It is absolutely perfect. I don't know how you did that. You're just a genius, right? And then the inevitability happens. Here's what would happen every single time. He would take out this big palette, and then he would take out his, his painter's knife, right? You remember the painter's knife? He would take that out, and then he would start to uh, take out his knife, and he would start to mix up some colors. Uh, he, he, he would mix up some brown, some black, start to mix it up together. 
And then, he's, then he says, you know what, I'm, I'm going to put a little cabin right here in the foreground. Put a little cabin. You know what he would do? Before he did that, he would take this big blob of black paint and just put it on top of this beautiful canvas. And in that moment, I am screaming angrily. I'm like, no, just stop it, you monster, you. Stop doing that. You have ruined the painting. Why didn't you stop while you were ahead? You just absolutely ruined it. And then what he would do is he would take out this knife and he would start to shape it, put a little roof, uh, he put a little roof on, put a little snow on top of the roof, put a little chimney there, and these little happy little puff, um, uh, puffs of smoke coming out of the chimney. And in that moment, I'd real, I realized in that moment, oh, that's, that's actually beautiful right there. Well, that's pretty perfect right there, Bob. You did a great job. Like, now I get it. Excuse me for the moment of panic that I had like a minute ago, right? This is amazing. Absolutely amazing. And maybe if you watched Bob Ross before, you watched him and you, real, you, know, you had that experience, you can relate to that, the little moment of panic and horror. And then the next time you watch him, he would do the same thing. But this time it would be like this beautiful mountain scene. He would, t- he would put a lake there. And then you would hear, oh, you know what? We're going to put a big dead tree log right there across the lake. And then all of a sudden, the big blob of black paints. And in that moment, again, I'm like, no, I'm in horror. Stop it. He would take out his little fan brush. You remember that two-inch fan brush? He would go... And then I'm thinking, wow, perfect. This is so beautiful. That black, that big blob of black paint makes sense to me now. You see, Bob Ross is no longer with us. He passed away, but his reruns still play on PBS today. And as a seasoned PBS watcher growing up, right, I can watch Bob Ross and that big blob of black paint comes there on the painting. I don't scream any longer at the TV angrily. Oh, what I do is I just kind of grip tightly my, my, the, the arms of my chair and I just wait for Bob to make everything okay again. And sure enough, he does. He does. Because I learned that Bob is a professional, that he is the artist, that he knows what he's doing and he does a great job at what he does. And even in the next step seems to be a step that is backwards or, or a step that is just a complete disaster. When, when I don't see what's coming, when I see that big blob that is coming right there, I, I know that I can trust the artist with the results of that. I say that to say this. I am still learning to trust God like how I trust Bob Ross. Some of you are here, you're, you're listening to me, and you're like, wow, I think this pastor is a heretic. <laughs> like, what I mean to say is, um, the, the Bible co- communicates that, that God is the sovereign author and artist of all of creation. Right? Both in the, in the meta-narrative of all of human history and the particulars of your story and of my story. Right? That he is God, he is a sovereign God, and he is in control. And for the Christian in particular, he gives us these promises, these gospel promises, where we, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, right, Jesus says, if your faith is in me, your sins are forgiven. 
Now, here's a promise that we talked about last week, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Sean, can you turn off the AC on this part? You can turn that on over there, but if you could turn this one off. Um, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, it says, God will work all things together for good for all those that love him, right? God works all things that Jesus promises that if you have a need, you call out and he will meet you. He will provide for you. That God promises that he is coming again to redeem his people, to, re- to, to redeem the broken. He is coming again to reign in righteousness and in justice, and he is going to put an end to all of injustice. And God is coming again, and he is writing a beautiful story. And yet, if I can be honest with you, there, there are times in my life where I believe, like, I believe that God, I get it, but, but, but why this, right? Like, that right there, God, does not make sense to me. It's like God is painting this beautiful canvas, and out of nowhere comes the big blob of black paint. And I think to myself, God, how are you going to work all these things together for the good of those that love you? God, how are you going to unwrite that tragic event right there, God? How are you going to use that, that relational drama, that, that, that setback, that loss, that, for the good of those that love you, right, for your ultimate glory, God? How are you going to do that? But what happens is God always does. He always does. And what we're going to see in the book of Exodus this morning is we're going to see that God is in control. He is in control. And we're going to see the big blob of black paint come and hit the canvas right here. And we are going to wonder, God, what in the world are you doing? What are you doing? And God is going to just, just minister to us. He's going to disciple our hearts today and train us. Watch that. That even through the tragic events, even through the tragedy, even through the trial, even through the unexpected, God is a God who keeps his promises. He is a God who keeps his promises. And here's why this matters for us, Hope Church, because God calls us, right, to know God. He calls us to know God through faith in Jesus Christ, to walk, right, not by sight, but by faith. And the thing is, those two things are two different realities right there, walking by sight, walking by faith, two different realities, right? You see, walking by sight means this. Walking by sight is I know the plan, I know the next step. Uh, I, I, it's kind of like paint by numbers, right? The blue goes over here, the red goes over here. You kind of know what's happening. You can see the end design before the paint even hits the canvas. You, you know. But God is not a paint by numbers kind of God. He doesn't call us to live by sights, but He calls us to live by by faith, to say that, God, I I don't know what the final result is going to be. I don't know the final picture of this, but it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be beautiful. That there is an artist who is superintending the events of human history and the particulars of your life, right? Even through the trials, even through the tragedy, even through the evil, even through the sin, that he is going to redeem that for good good. Redeem that for good. 
And so what I want to do today is as we look at the book of Exodus, as this story kind of unfolds, what we're going to see is it's just going to train our hearts to trust him in faith. Because all of us are going to have that big blob of black paint that's going to be there. All, right? all of us are going to come to a point where we're going to question the goodness and the sovereign hand of God in our own life. And he's going to disciple our hearts this morning to trust him even into the unknown. All right, so real quick, uh, let me just kind of give you the background of Exodus before we kind of dive into our text today. So Exodus is the second book of the Bible. It is the sequel to the prequel of the first book, which is the book of Genesis. So let me give you a little background of Genesis in 30 seconds, okay? Uh, Genesis is the book of beginnings where we see God create the world, right? God creates everything that is good. We see the fall happen, and then we see sin enter the human equation where everything goes downhill from there. And then all of a sudden, we see the start of redemption where God pursues his people, and he starts rewriting the story, and he starts calling a people to himself. Then all of a sudden, like, we see part of the redemptive story is this promise that God gives, right? It's a promise that we see in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 17, where he makes this promise. And the Bible word for that is the word covenant. Makes a covenant. God, by his grace, chooses a, a, a nobody from nowhere, and he chooses that person and says, by grace, I'm going to use you, and through your descendants is going to come a great and a mighty nation. Right? And, and, and though that mighty nation is going to be a blessing to all of the earth, and I'm going to call them to a particular place, to a promised land. And so you have this covenant, right? This promise, uh, this promise of God that says through Abraham is going to come a people and a place, a mighty nation and a mighty, in, a, in a promised land. Now, Genesis ends with this, uh, with this mighty nation and a promised people that are about to die of starvation. So what does God do? God sends them into Egypt where God takes care of them and God feeds them during this time. And, and the question is now lingering. The question is, how is God going to keep his promise, right, through this time of uh, slavery in Egypt? How is he going to do it? So here we go. Exodus chapter 1. And what I want to do as we read this, what I want to do is I just want us to see and believe that God is good and that God keeps his promises. And so I want to show you two ways, right? Two ways in the first two chapters of how God keeps his promises that we need to just believe and apply this to our own lives. Okay, so number one, I want us to see that God keeps his promises through unlikely circumstances. God keeps his promises through unlikely circumstances. So let's look at Exodus chapter 1, the first few verses. Um, basically, in the first few verses, it's saying that there's a, there are folks that come into Egypt, right? The sons of Israel, the grandson of, of Abraham. And it says that there are about 12 folks. And then it says in verse 5, is what it says. All the descendants of Jacob were about 70 persons. So you look at that and you're like, well, well that doesn't look like a mighty nation right there. That looks like a... Uh, maybe like a Mormon, Mormon family or something, right? That doesn't look like a mighty nation. It looks kind of big. Maybe it's like a Catholic family sitting around a dinner table, like kind of big, but not like a mighty nation. And so you're thinking, God, what are you doing? That doesn't make sense. 
verse 7. It says this, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Okay, so right there we're seeing here a, a nation now, right? We're seeing that. We're, it seems like God is now keeping his promise and he's fulfilling it. Right? It seems like Bob Ross has the canvas painted. And then all of, you know, things are making sense there in Egypt. They're, they're going to be a great nation. They're going to rise up and things are just going to be amazing. And then all of a sudden, the big blob of black paint hits the canvas. Verse 8 through 11, it says this. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And he goes on and on and on. Okay, let me ask you a question. Have you ever met an insecure man that had a position of power? (laughs) Some of you are like, yeah, I work for him. That's called my boss. I mean, that's a toxic combination right there, right? Like, you got insecurity, you got power. Those two things do not lead to good things. But that is Pharaoh. That's Pharaoh right there. Pharaoh, you see, is a, uh, is a man of great influence and power. He is the king of the land. He is the king of this mighty nation of Egypt. And yet, Pharaoh is a man who, ha- who is just horribly insecure, right? He, he just... He observes that there's 70 people, right, who have come, and the language there means swarm, right? It's, it means everywhere. Like, they're everywhere. People are now thriving in this land, and so insecurity starts gripping his heart. He's fearful, and he says, we need to suppress these people. Uh, we need to suppress them unless they come after my position and they take power in my land. And so what does he do? He, he slavery. Slavery occurs, he, su- he subjects them to a brutal physical labor, and he's going to suppress them through force, right? Boom, the big blob of black paints. And it gets worse. As, as we read this, it gets worse. You, you read this, you read on, and it says that not only did he want to subject them to slavery, but he actually in- initiate, wants to initiate genocide. Here. And he actually tells the midwives, he tells them, hey, if a Hebrew lady has a son, I want you to kill him. If, if, that, if that's not bad enough, he goes on and he says, well, anytime a Hebrew has a baby son, put, them in the, put him in the Nile River and send him away. So, so now we get to pause right here and we get to look at this big narrative that, that's playing out in front of us. And you can ask the question right now is, well, psst, how, how is the promise fleshing out right now? Right? Everything seems to be going okay, but what about being a mighty nation? What about this promised land that you were talking about, God? Why aren't these people thriving in Egypt any longer? 
If God is a God who is in control and if God is good and he wants to make this amazing people out of this particular group, why are they now being stomped out? They're being enslaved. They're being executed. They're they're being murdered, right? It seems like God has given up. That's what it seems like at at this point. I want to ask you, I'm curious if you have ever been there in your life that living in Egypt, maybe you're there right now. Maybe that's you today. You're not a part of no like systematic genocide or nothing, but maybe you feel, you know what, God? You gave me some promises. You promised me some things. There was a preacher that said that, you know what, God has a wonderful plan for me. And I took the bait, God. I took the bait. And now I lost a loved one right after that. Or I lost my job. Or the check bounced right after that. Or, or this trial occurred. And we all can have our own little taste of Egypt in our life. And if we're just really honest, we can just doubt God doubt God's plan for us. We can doubt that God is good. We can doubt that God is in control. And you start to think, well, you know, my grandmother said that God is good, but I just sure don't see it. That preacher gets up and he goes on and on and on and on about the love of God, but I just don't feel loved by God. And the circumstances of my life quite don't sync up to the promises of God in my life. I thought that God kept his promises. I I thought that God would just work all things for good for those that loved him. I'm just just not seeing how that's going to work out. I just want to say that if you are here today and you are doubting the goodness of God, if that is you, I want to be real transparent this morning and say, I wrestle with the same thing quite a bit. I wrestle with that. You see what happens in the world. You see what happens in the news and the crisis, and you're thinking, like, what's that, God? That doesn't line up. God, you look at what's happening in your own life, and you're like, "I I just don't understand God's loving care for me. And we wrestle with that. Like the circumstances of our life don't line up to the promises of God in our lives. But let me just say this. Before we kind of put a Christian bow on it and say, you know, God, you know, God will know at the end everything's going to be all right. We'll get it at the end. Before we do that, and we're going to get there. But we're going to see how God keeps his promises, okay? If you're in your Egypt right now, let me say this. If you are in your Egypt, because we're all going to be in our own Egypt, specific Egypts, right? We all, if we're all going to be in an Egypt, we all got to know what to do when we are in our Egypt. Because we know we're going to get out of it, but what are we going to do while we are in our Egypt? So I'm just going to show, just show us this morning what God does in the moment of trial when they walk, the Israelites walk, and, and how God's promises come to their current reality. So look with me in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 to 25. And we're going to see what, what we do in our Egypt. 
it says this, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. They cry for rescue from slavery. They, they cry for rescue from slavery came upon to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with J- Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and it says, and God knew. Hope Church, when we are in our Egypt, what do we do? We cry out to God. Right? We, we cry out to God. The one thing that the Israelites held on to, they held on to that. They asked for help. It says they called on to their God. Verse 24, it says, because God heard them. And it says God remembered. Verse 25, it says God saw. The same verse, it says God knew. And some of us are in this room right now. We need to hear this this morning. And you feel like you are in your Egypt And you feel like you are having a hard time reconciling your experience with the promise of God. But in the moment of your Egypt, just remember that you are not alone. That God has not forsaken you. He's not forsaken you. So what do you do in your Egypt? You cry out to God. Cry out to God. Why? Because he hears. Because he hears. You claim to the promises on your life because he remembers. He remembers. Cry out to God because he sees you and he knows. He sees you and he knows. He sees you and he knows. That you are not alone. Now let me give you this because we, we need to kind of get some uh, perspective that I think um, Exodus gives us this morning. So let me just share uh, this. Uh, so, so when the Hebrew people, they were in Egypt and they're having to let their babies go and they're, they're saying goodbye to their babies and when they're in their slavery and these people are just disappointed by the circumstances of their life. You know, there is no way that they are saying, you know, oh, that, that, that's the good hand of God that is guiding my step right there. Right? No way. They're thinking in their mind, oh, my gosh, this is horrible. This is horrible. They did not have the perspective to know that God is working through their circumstances. They didn't have the perspective to know that. God was working through that. Right, the, the providential hand of God moving to redeem his people. But that's exactly the, what God was doing in their life. L- let me share this. You see, God is not the author of evil, though be assured he will use it. Right? Like, God did not forsake his promise that he had, even though through the big blob of black paint that hits the canvas, the painter was about to make something beautiful. 
about to make something beautiful. Here's a perspective that we get in hindsight, that the Bible gives us what happened in the book of Exodus. Okay, so so stay with me. Think about this for a moment. All right, think about this for a moment. If the Hebrew people were thriving in Egypt, if they were, if they had been treated well and they enjoyed the luxuries of the Egyptian culture, they would have just assimilated into Egypt, right? They, they would have most likely just absorbed into their culture and they would have lost their identity as a people. Right? They would have lost their faith in a God and they would have just leaned into the pagan Egyptian gods. But God would not let them do that. But God would not let them settle in. How many of us can look in hindsight in our lives and say, man, thank God he didn't answer my prayers when I was 18. Like, I wouldn't be who I am if I didn't go through that trial. I wouldn't know God the way that I know God if I didn't have to go through that stuff. My character wouldn't be shaped, wouldn't be where it is today if I didn't go through that fire. And so I may not know the details right now, but I know that God has a purpose. He had a purpose in that particular moment of my life. And so so if nothing else, we realize that God is not going to let them settle in for a lesser home, for a lesser faith in Egypt. He's going to just get them out. He's loosening their roots as it is in Egypt because they were never intended to be there. Never intended. He was strengthening their prayer life. He was drawing them to himself, and he was preparing them for a greater home. He was preparing them for a greater glory. And and Hope Church, listen to this. In your Egypt, in your trial right now, if nothing else, this should remind us that this is not our home. This is not our home. The trials of our life, if no other purpose, if, if we don't get it, it should remind us that we are created for a greater glory. It should serve to just unsettle our roots in this broken world and just remind us that, oh, you know what, I, I don't live here. This is not what it's intended to be. I have a greater hope. I have a greater home. I have a greater promise, and that is in Jesus Christ. And so number one, I want us to see that God keeps his promises but he does it in unlikely circumstances, right? And it's true for the Hebrew people, and it's true for us here today. Just because you don't understand what's happening in your circumstances, don't think for a second that God has abandoned you, right? Our God is a good God. He is a sovereign God, and he keeps his promise. Even in the midst of the big blob of black paint that makes no sense to you, God is going to make something beautiful out of it. God keeps his promise and he does it through unlikely circumstances, number one. And lastly, number two, I want us to see that God keeps his promises through unlikely people. God keeps his promises through unlikely people. All right, so let me take you back into the story right now. Uh, We're going to just start to see the hand of God bringing the promise here for, for the people. Now remember, uh, we talked about Pharaoh is intimidated by the people. He wants to stomp this people out. He, he just wants to shut them down. But watch what God does here. 
God starts to intervene. Chapter 1, verse 15, it says this. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew woman and see them on their birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Um, I mean, that's just funny right there. <laughs> I mean, let's just appreciate, like, the creativity there. Basically, they're just saying, like, you know, I, I don't know. Like, they, they call the midwife, we get there, and, and bam, like, the baby's already born. Okay, those uh, Hebrew ladies, they're a bunch of vigorous gals, I, I tell you. Um, pretty funny. But verse 20, it says this, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Okay, so... I just want to pause right there, and I just want to appreciate these women here, right? These women get, like, this supporting role in the story here, and, like, we, and Moses, and we're going to talk about Moses next Sunday, but I just want to appreciate Shifra and Pua right here because they're courageous women. Right? I mean, talk about courage. I mean, the most powerful man in all of the land comes with this direct order, and he says, kill all the male babies. Kill them. And verse 17, it says, they feared God. And because they feared God, they did not kill the boys. These women, they obeyed God in the midst of this ungodly government, right, that was telling them, that was commanding them to disobey God and kill innocent children. They wouldn't do that. And God honored them. God redeemed it. By the way, it says midwives here. And let me just, because we said the word midwives. You see, midwives was not a, uh, a cultural place of elevation in this culture here. Not a cultural place of elevation. Who was a midwife? A midwife was someone, most likely often, it was, it was a lady who couldn't give birth on her own. And so this was a lady who, who was single or she just couldn't have children. And so she had the assignment to help women um, who could have children have children. And so this was more really a, a role of relegation, not delegation. And you think about these women, and you think about them, you're like, there is no doubt in your mind, in my mind, that at some point in their life, they are questioning God's goodness. No doubt about it. Some point in their life. Because babies are born every single day. These women are seeing babies born. And I mean, think about it. They, they're asking the question, why am I without children? Why am I the midwife and not the birth wife? Why, God? And then I'm sure at some point they felt in this moment like this giant blob of black hitting the canvas. Who were the midwives? Right? Why were they not mothers at this point? Because God needed a bunch of faith-filled women to save an entire generation of his people. 
He had a purpose and a plan. They thought, man, my circumstances are just so horrible. But God says, no, that's your assignment, right? That's your assignment. And listen very carefully to me. Listen very carefully. Usefulness to God is not about status. It's always about surrender. Usefulness to God is never about status. It's always about surrender. And these women, they get elevated. How did they get elevated? Like, think about it. These women, their names are in the Bible. <laughs> That's amazing. These are not kings. These are not queens here. These are just lowly people who feared God, and God changed the world and redeemed an entire generation through them. How amazing is that? And, and listen very carefully here. Never underestimate your usefulness to God. Never underestimate your usefulness to God. God's primary work in the world does not come through paid professionals, through preachers, through uh, ministry uh, practitioners. No, it comes through everyday people who fear God and obey God in their circumstances, even if they seem bleak. I mean, more so, maybe more if, if they seem bleak, right? So this morning, would you do that? Would you trust God and believe that he can use you to change the world, right? Would we believe that today? Let's keep going. Uh, we're going to kind of get to the end here, uh, the climax of the story. Um, I'm not going to read it all for the sake of time, but I'm just going to summarize this uh, real quick. So after the midwives kind of thwart Pharaoh's uh, plan here, Pharaoh has another plan. He says that every son has to be thrown into the Nile River. Okay, just, uh, just by the way, just to share that the Nile River was kind of divine. It was just kind of known to be seen as this Egyptian god. And so they're saying, hey, Hebrew people, what we want you to do is sacrifice your children to the God of Egypt. And so they had to do that. Then in chapter 2, uh, in verse 1, we see a little story here. It's this beautiful little story. Uh, we see this Hebrew couple having a little baby. When the mom sees that it's a son, um, three months in, she can't hide it anymore. And then the story gets horrible. She had to put this baby into the river. But instead of dropping the baby boy into the river, what does she do? She makes a basket, she covers it with tar, and she places the baby in the basket, and she lets it go. She lets it go. Now, I just want to take a, a moment right now, just a minute, just for us to picture. I want, I want us to picture the horror and the despair of this woman right now. I can't go there too long because I don't like talking about babies because I'm gonna, I'll start crying, but I'm not going to go there. But this is a real woman, okay? This is not a fairy tale. This is a real lady who said, this is my son, and I want to put him in the river. I mean, you want to talk about a big blob of just black paint hitting the canvas right there? And you think, God... How are you going to redeem something that is just so horrible going on? But watch what happens. 
chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young woman walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this, one of, this is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? The Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you the wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her, and she, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Hashtag irony. Like, do you see it? I'm going to quote a scholar who said this. Uh, the daughter of Pharaoh rescues the very child that would free God's people from Pharaoh. The very mother that had to walk away from her son is then invited to nurse and care for her son and gets paid by Pharaoh to do it. The son who was born a slave will grow up a prince and use his position of status to redeem the slaves. A brutal attempt to exterminate God's people becomes the act, the very act that will eventually liberate God's people. What looked to the world to be the very worst possible outcome becomes the very act that God uses for the salvation of his people. Guys, what we see here is we see a picture of the gospel right here, right? Do you see Jesus right here in the pages of this? Do you see his redeeming heart? The, the ironic providential character of God that brings his promise through unlikely people, through unlikely circumstances, Right, watch, the connect, watch the connection here. Look at this. The darkest day in all of human history, the greatest blob of pain that hit the canvas of human history was the day that Jesus Christ, the only innocent man that ever lived, died a brutal criminal's execution. Right? The gospel says that that day was just so horrific that the sun couldn't even stand and just look at what was happening. It says that the sun stopped shining at the creation because it couldn't even look at the big blob of just black paint that was there. The most horrific tragedy, the only innocent one that ever lived, God himself murdered by his very creation. But what no one saw coming was that the skilled painter was still making Something beautiful. What looked like to be this horrific tragedy was the very event that won the salvation of the world. Through the horrific execution of Jesus Christ, we see that Jesus dies as a substitute and he rises as a savior. And now we as the nations of the world we are blessed by what Jesus did. That whoever calls on the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. That whoever trusts and receives Jesus is born again 
into his family, set free, liberated from the greater bondage of sin, death, and Satan himself, set free to be in, have eternal life with God. Now, let me give you a spoil, spoiler alert, okay? Um, like I mentioned, uh, we're going to be... We're going to be talking about Moses next week, and um, it's taking a lot of discipline for me right now to not talk about Moses. I want to do it so bad. Uh, we're going to save that for next Sunday. But um, let me just kind of fast forward here to the end of the Exodus story. We're going to fast forward really quick um, and on into how this story kind of plays out. So that's what we're going to just really quick look at. Okay, I mean, really quickly, like what happened to the promise? We know Moses comes about. We know what happened there. But here it goes. Let me ask you this question. What happened to the promise that God gave to Abraham that made him a mighty nation? What happened to that promise that God made Abraham into a mighty nation? So let's fast forward, okay? We're going to fast forward into the New Testament. We're going uh, to go to the Gospel of Matthew really quick. And we're going to see something very interesting here. Matthew chapter 1 verses 2 and 3. It says this, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And he goes on, you know, verse after verse, he goes on, and it's one of those verses, like when you're a new Christian, you're thinking to yourself, like, whoa, this is just so boring. Why is this even in, in here, right? I keep reading. It says 42 names, 42 generations. You go down 13 verses. Let's go to verse 15. It says this. And Iliad, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Mathen, and Mathen, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, and the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Don't you see that the promise of Abraham was always about Jesus. The promise of Abraham was always about Jesus. A mighty nation through the person of Abraham and his descendants. Do you see it this morning? That God's providential hand throughout history, restoring and redeeming a people, preparing them until Jesus Christ, the only innocent man that has ever lived, is ultimately born. And through him, all the nations of the world are blessed. The Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and the covenant family of God is opened up to people like you and I, right? And that we have received the promise of Abraham. How did that song go? Father Abraham had many sons. Right? That's, that's you and I. Like we are included into the covenant family of God. Right? I mean, don't you see the brilliance of God that, that a baby boy is born into the basket and then a baby boy is born in a manger, in a barn. That God uses unlikely stories, unlikely circumstances, unlikely people to fulfill his covenant promises. And so Hope Church, what we, I think what we do sometimes is like we have this myopic view of our lives, right? Like we kind of get down right into, the, into, into our lives like, like this. And, and we think to ourselves, man, how does God even work that out? 
Like, God, is God even in this situation in my life? And I think the invitation of Exodus is for us to, to, to look up, right? Not just that small view, but to look up and to say, man, God is an amazing God. He is a sovereign God, and he is, he is superintending the affairs of my life. And even though I'm here and I don't understand the big blob of black paint that is there, I, I don't get it, I don't understand it, but what I do know is that I have a God who has not lost control, that he is in control of my life. And there may be some day at the end of my life where, you know what, I'm going to get the perspective, I'll maybe get and understand that big blob of black paint, maybe not. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to learn at the last day when I'm face-to-face with Jesus that, that, he, that I'm fully known. He's fully, he fully knows everything. And in that moment, I'll get it. I'll get it then. But in the meantime, Hope Church, we are called to walk by faith and not by sight. And so would we be a people? Would we be a church would we be people that say, you know what, God is the promise keeper. Right? He hears the prayers of his people, and God is a God who redeems. If my God secured my salvation, can I trust God in this trial with a big blob of black paint that is there? Because he's going to take out that little knife, and he's going to put it all together. And someday, I'm going to look back and see, you know what? God was in control and that he has made something beautiful.